One of the one of the great gifts that the Lord has given to me that I will forever give him thanks for is the gift of being a father. Um, those of you who are fathers and mothers, I know, probably share the same sentiment and same sense of gratitude. Being a father at times is hard, but I'm so overwhelmed by the blessing of just being a dad sometimes uh, that I just raise my hands up to the Lord and say, thank you. It's a, it's a gift I don't deserve. Um, I especially love watching younger my younger children. My, my Isaac is, is, is heading towards three. Um, I think we're on the uphill out of the, t- the terrible twos. At least that's what we're hoping. But one of the things that I love about young children is that they ha- the, the world around them is really just like an ocean of mysteries to be solved. Um, Isaac has this phrase that he says relentlessly, and actually it's not a phrase, it's a question. Um, and the, phrase, the question is this, what's that name? Uh, he's trying to figure out what things are, and he doesn't have the grammar right. Instead of saying, hey, what's that? He says, what's that name? And so just yesterday, I must have heard the question 40 different times. And I was out in the front yard. He pointed at the garden hose and said, what's that name? And I said, well, that's, that's, that's a hose. He goes, hose. Okay. And he says, what's that name? Well, that's my lawnmower. Well, what's that name? Well, that's my weed eater. Well, weed eater. What's that name? Well, that's my, my leaf blower. What's that? And we went to the grocery store after that. And he says, what's that name? I said, that's cheese. And what's that name? Well, that's chicken. What's that name? Well, that is, is a cash register, you know? And he asks it over and over and over again. It does get a little bit monotonous at times. And yet, it's just he's so full of a desire to unravel the wonders of the world around him. Um, about a month ago, we were camping, and, and he found this ladybug. And he is completely unafraid of any kind of animal. He has actually had, um, well, he doesn't know any better. He picked up a bee one time. Unfortunately, it didn't sting him, but he's unafraid. He just finds it fascinating. Well, he picks up this ladybug, comes up to me and says, Dad, what's that name? And I said, well, that's a ladybug. And, of course, he can't pronounce L's, so he calls it a nadybug. I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nadybug, uh, Isaac, he carried that thing around for 30 minutes just looking at it. That, that, was, that was what he did. He didn't crush it. He didn't throw it. He just was marveling at it. And it's such a, such a refreshing thing, thing to see in the life of a child um, that, that they, they, they recognize that the world around them is full of wonder and amazement. They are astonished by things, simple things like a ladybug, that they see in the world around them an ocean of mysteries to be understood. And uh, there's something that happens, unfortunately, when you grow older. You, th- you tend to think that you understand the world around you, and it loses its wonder and its mystery, its astonishment, its amazement. And, and my son, again, shows me what it is to live in a world surrounded by wonders. And um, I think sometimes that's what happens in our spiritual lives. You come to the Lord, or you get who Jesus is for the first time, and you really grasp His love, you grasp the sacrifice of the cross, you grasp that God really does really does care for me. And it's, it, it, it kind of unleashes this sense of wonder and amazement. And God is this mysterious but wonderful um, person to be understood and known. And, and unfortunately, what oftentimes happens is you grow older in the faith and we lose our sense of wonder, our sense of astonishment, our sense of amazement. And somehow the mystery is gone. That is to say, over time, we give God His labels and we have put Him in categories and we assign Him His respective box to the extinction of His mystery. 
Now, labels and categories are good and helpful in our understanding of who God is, and yet they must never be confining. They must never be confining of who He is. I'm reminded of something that A.W. Tozer once said over 50 years ago that I think still holds true, and he says, where there is no mystery, there is no worship. We don't like mystery, but where there is no mystery, there is no worship. We are not awe-inspired by things that have no mystery. Where there is no mystery, there is no worship. Where there is no mystery, there is no wonder. We tend not to be compelled to chase after, seek after things that we have mastered. I bought an iPhone this a few weeks ago. It was time to change plans. My wife and I both were completely mesmerized by that commercial for the iPhone. And if you tell anybody I bought an Apple product, um, then I'll be seriously embarrassed because I will never hear the end of it. But, uh, but I bought an iPhone and I thought, man, this thing is full of mystery. And I, I, I got it within two hours. I had figured it out. And now all it is is a phone. That's all it is. It's just a phone. Once the mystery is gone, there's no awe-inspiring experience of the iPhone. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you and what I'm hoping the Spirit will say to us over the course of the next ten weeks is the God of the Bible is utterly and entirely incomprehensible. He is boundless. He is limitless. He is measureless. Nothing can contain Him. No concept or idea or word statement or phrase. To think that we have somehow mastered the knowledge of God is like thinking that you can understand the vastness of the universe by looking at it through a straw. Can you imagine trying to understand the universe by looking up through a straw? Or thinking that you can somehow explore the vast oceans of the earth with a canoe and a paddle. It just cannot ever happen. And the men who wrote the Bible understood, perhaps better than many of us, that they were just kindergartners grasping at the quantum physics of who God is. Men like Job, who, who, who presumed to understand God's righteousness as it, as it relates to suffering and evil, question the Lord. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Job, you find him in a heap of ashes and he's, he's declaring to the Lord, I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. When David in Psalm 139 was thinking about the vast knowledge of God, he, he said the same thing. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty to attain. When Paul thought of the, uh, the, the depth of salvation and the wisdom of salvation, of what happened at the cross, he could declare in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. As the men of the Bible knew that they just were, were, were touching the tip of the iceberg that goes infinitely outward. The God of the Scriptures is incomprehensible. And what knowledge we do have Him from Scripture and from creation doesn't begin to traverse the ocean of infinity or begin to grasp the magnitude of what divinity is. So for the next ten weeks, what I would like to do through the Scripture is go on an exploration of the mysteries of who God is. With the idea of hopefully reawakening ourselves to, to the massiveness of God with a very particular purpose. I need that. I believe we need that. 
My kids need that. I, I want more than anything else for my kids to be wholly and inescapably captivated by the massiveness of God. Because if God in their mindset is small, they will never live for Him. They will never live for Him. I mean, we seek after that which is mysterious. It's the young man who looks at the mysterious young woman who's driven by the insanity of romance. It's, it's, it's the scientist that, or scientists that spend billions of dollars making a laboratory to discover the mysterious neutrino. You just read about that in the paper. It's the mystery of the universe that, that compels the astronomer to comb through the heavens looking for the truth. And if, if mystery compels us to look at those things of creation, how much more should the mystery of God's massiveness compel us to seek after the one who created all, all those foreboding mysteries? So that's the exploration we're headed on. And today is just the beginning point. I want you to know it's not theory. It's not just stepping up into the ivory tower of this is what God is like. I believe that based upon what we understand in our vision and our contemplation of the massiveness of God, I believe it has a very practical benefit. And that is it changes us. I believe it changes us. It is one of the most practical things we can do on a Sunday morning is to unveil through the Scripture, by the Spirit, the massiveness of who God is. And here we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the climactic verse of the entire chapter and the chapters about the superiority of the new covenant, specifically the covenant of the Spirit of God. And it comes to its head in, in verse 18 or comes to its climax where we find vision and transformation, a vision of glory and transformation side by side. Let me read this text. Verse 18, Paul speaking, says, And we who with unveiled faces, that is, blinders have been taken off, all reflect, or I like the NAS better, it says, all behold, as we reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That verse, verse 18, begins with a vision. A vision of the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, for sake of argument and time, let me submit to you that I believe the Lord there is nothing or no one less than, than Jesus Christ. If you go down a couple of verses in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, you'll read and you'll see a lot of the same words used where he says, verse 4 of chapter 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that is, they still veiled so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's who they can't see is Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And in verse 6 is also key. For God who said, let, their, no, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. That's, that's the vision to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when you come back to the end of chapter 3 in verse 18, when it says, that we with unveiled faces all behold or reflect the Lord's glory. That's nothing less than the incomprehensible glories of God found in the face of Jesus. So that God's infinite character finds its focus for us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So that if in the end we see Jesus merely as a philanthropist or, or a teacher or a religious figure, then the blinders are still on. Rather, Paul would have us understand that within and embodied in the person of Christ is a treasure store of the infinite perfections of who God is. All found in Christ. That's where it comes into focus. As best as we can understand it, and the fullest expression that God can express it is in the person of Jesus. Paul, in a different place, could say the staggering words. This is Colossians chapter 1, when it says, God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, Jesus. And think about that statement. That is an incomprehensible statement. That God was pleased to have all His fullness, the fullness of infinite divinity, dwell in Jesus. And Solomon, when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings, he understood that this temple would never house the fullness of God. He understood when he prayed that not even the universe itself could contain the presence of the fullness of God. It's like trying to stuff the Milky Way into a thimble. It just cannot happen. And yet we find that in Christ, God was pleased to have all the fullness of His infinite perfections dwell. Right here in one person. One chapter later, he would tell us that God also placed in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And also an incomprehensible statement. All knowledge, known, unknown, visible, invisible, heavenly knowledge, earthly knowledge, the vast chasm of God's infinite divine mind, all finds its fullness in one person, Jesus. That's the, that's the vision of chapter 3, verse 18. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. The infinite wonders of God's perfections all found in the person of, of Jesus. Is it any wonder then that Paul could say that in Christ there are unsearchable riches? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. Is it any wonder that he... That in seeing Christ with that kind of gargantuan vision, that he could say that he would count everything lost so that he might know him. The ultimate mystery of the universe of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the vision of the first part of the verse. The massiveness of God found in Christ. The glory of God reflected in the person of Jesus. But it has a very practical benefit to it. Because if you look at the next part, you see that right after he says, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, you see that we are being transformed into the likeness with ever, His likeness with ever-increasing glory. That is to say, the vision of Christ, the gargantuan massive vision of the glory of God resident and embodied in Jesus Christ changes us into the very image we're beholding. Now when we think of change, and most of us want to see change in our life for the better, we typically run right to steps and stages and structures. How do I get from point A to point B? Let me put these things in my life to get from point A to point B. And there is a place for those, but if we think that that's fundamental to change in our life, then we got the cart before the horse. 
fundamental to any true change in your life will be a life-altering vision of who Jesus is. That's at the bedrock of where change comes from. It's having this mind-blowing, ever-increasing understanding of the infinite glories of God found in Jesus. It makes a very practical difference in your life. So that as we see more and more, and as we believe what we see, and as we savor what we see, and we contemplate what we see, and are captivated by what we see, perplexed by what we see, confounded by what we see, we find our lives being altered into the very image that we see. If I could put it a different way, I'd say that we become like what we worship. We become like what we deem to be the greatest. We become like what we think is the most worthy thing in the universe. I remember reading the Psalms coming across this principle, but in the negative, in Psalm 115. Just let me read it for you because you'll find how I think it's true that what you worship, you become like. In this case, false idols. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 115, verse 4. Listen to this. He says, But their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak. In other words, they're dumb. Eyes but cannot see. So they're blind. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. If your God is dumb, stupid, blind, and unable to communicate, you worship Him long enough, you will become dumb, blind, and unable to speak. You become like what you worship. Psalm 135 echoes the same truth, and so does Isaiah chapter 44. The idea that what you worship, you become like. What is the greatest, you become like. And that's, that's not some magical formula. You see that true in lives of people and the lives of children. I mean, let me return to my children for a second. One of the great things about having young children is they still think that I'm better than sliced bread. You know, I know the day is coming when someone else will take my place. There's bigger, better. When they will understand what I already know, and that is I am not the greatest thing in the world. But for now, mom and dad are like the greatest. And what is it that children naturally do? Thinking of their great parents. Well, they emulate them. They imitate them. I went out to mow my yard yesterday, and I put on shorts. Isaac wanted to go. He wanted to put on shorts. I put on a shirt. He put on a shirt. I went outside, put on my shoes. He put on his shoes. I put a hat on. He says, Daddy, hat. And I put a hat on him. I go out and mow the lawn. He wants to get his little plastic mower and go right behind me. He wants to be like me because in his little tiny mind, he thinks his daddy's great. Now, I know the day's coming when that won't be the case. And someone else they will look at as greater than dad. And that next person will be instrumental in the formation of the character of my child because the people, personalities, things that we think are great are formative. What we think is great is transformative. Vision is transformative. And if my kids have positive role models that imitate Christ, well, then they will be formed into the image of Christ. If they have role models that aren't, if they think a great person is a drug dealer, then it's going to go the opposite direction. You are formed by what you deem great or worthy. I look at the, the shape of my daughter's life and how Hannah Montana has shaped her thoughts 
her ways of speaking, her music, and even her dress. And I realized, there's no steps that she has to go through to be like Hannah Montana. She just thinks she's great and wants to be like her. That's the whole point of chapter 3, verse 18. Is if Christ is indeed the greatest thing in your life, in your mind, in your heart, then you will become like what you worship. That's how it works. There's no magic in it. So if He is, if He is the most wonderful, uh, most glorious, the most beautiful, the most mysterious to you, then your life will take its shape based upon that truth. Which means, brothers and sisters, the most important thing you can do in your life if you want to see change is to nurture and maintain an ever-increasing vision of the massiveness of who Jesus is. That will change you. It will change you. It will transform you. And you know, when people struggle with sins, and I know there's every kind of different sin that probably people in this particular family struggle with. Some of you struggle with the desire to eat more than you should. Others struggle with anger, that you vent your anger more than you should, and your children or your boss or your wife. Others struggle with pornography. I mean, to go through the list, and I'll hit almost everybody here. And a lot of people are wondering, hey, how come I can't experience um, victory over this? I've tried all the steps. I've done the strategy, and it still doesn't work. Well, it's because you got the cart before the horse, in my thinking. The kind of change so that you'll see sin overcome in your life will first and foremost come from this ever-increasing vision, sight, Faith that Jesus is the most wonderful thing in the universe. Then the steps will work. Steps without Jesus at the center, it'll never work. It's bankrupt and you'll find yourself failing, 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 and failing over and over because right here, Paul is kind of giving it to us. He says, as we behold, as in a mirror, the glory of Christ, we are being transformed in ever-increasing measure from glory to glory. Which brings us to the last part of the verse. The first part is the object of the vision. And the second part is what it does to us, namely transform us. The last part shows us what makes that possible because it answers it when it says, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What that tells me, which I should tell us, Paul is telling us, is that no matter how much intellect or imaginative powers we, we exercise, in and of ourselves, we can never have a vision that's capable of changing our lives unless it's born on the wind of God's Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that enables this life-transforming vision that you believe in your heart to happen. The Spirit of the living God. He's the one who takes it and welds it into the fabric of your soul so that not only do you understand it intellectually, but you believe it in your spirit. And there's a big difference between understanding in terms of information and believing with your inner life, your soul. And the Spirit of the living God is the one who takes words like this on a page. The Spirit of the living God is one who takes a message like this on a Sunday morning. The information and then knits it into the fabric of your heart. Which is why it requires so much prayer to say to the Lord, Spirit of the living God, please... I know that you are faithful, but show me, 
Show me that it's not a mere concept, it's a reality. Take me up into the kind of the Himalayan peaks of your faithfulness and show me new vistas of, of who you are. Show me that your wisdom is, is always to be trusted because the world around me looks like chaos. Help me to see the glories of the wisdom of God in Christ and trust it. It's the Spirit of the living God. It's, it's on His wings that we rise and we find ourselves faced with new, life-changing, wondrous, astonishing, amazing truths and find our souls liberated to live and to love and to be like Christ. So you have this vision of glory that transforms by the power of the Spirit. And over the course of the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at that vision and its various aspects. The glories of God's perfections in Christ with the hope that it will transform us as the Spirit takes us up, gives us eyes to see and hearts to know. And I wholly believe and hope and pray that God will change us as a result. I mean, that's how men in the past have been changed radically. You look at Moses. It wasn't until he came to a face-in-face encounter with the holy living God that he went from being a pansy to being a deliverer. It wasn't until Isaiah saw God high, seated on the throne, his robe filling the temple, which almost destroyed him, that compelled him to go off and become one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. It was Paul's road to ruin when he saw the brilliant light of the glorified risen Christ. He was blinded and it turned a man who was a persecutor into a passionate apostle and one day someone who would give his life because he believed Jesus was worth it. It makes a massive difference to come face to face with the incomprehensible perfections of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is where we're headed. Lord God, I pray that even now as we worship that you would allow us the freedom to see with eyes that only the Spirit can give. And that is the boundless love of Christ, the immeasurable power of Christ, the unfathomable mercy of Christ, the unsearchable judgments of Christ, the wisdom, the truth. Father, I pray even for these next nine, ten weeks that you would lift us up into the the Himalayas of your glory and allow us a fresh vision of who you are. In the name of Christ, to the glory of Christ, and by the power of the Spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.